This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading is John chapter 14, verses 2 to 4. It can be found on page 901 in your black-covered Bibles. John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I am one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, hey, we're, uh, we're really glad that you're here. Welcome. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll just get rolling. So, <clears throat> Jesus. Jesus, as you left your disciples, this is what you said to them. This is what you said to them as you walked the Calvary road, as you were separated from them and beaten and flogged and hung on a cross. This is what you chose to say to them. So would you open our hearts? Would you open our hearts so that we can receive what you're saying to us? Would you open our hearts to receive the truth, the power, the goodness of your promise Would you open our hearts to see you and love you and trust you? Would you open our hearts to understand that you are preparing a place for us and you're preparing us for that place? I ask that you would uh, till our hearts up with good soil so that the truth of your word can be planted deeply inside of us and that we can trust it that it can stabilize us, that it can sink into the bottom of who we are in a way that gives us strength and comfort and hope. Holy Spirit, do your work this morning. Make us humble and receptive in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, in John, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is going to explain basically like a glorious reality about himself and the Trinity and God the Father over and over and over again. He's going to explain glorious reality after glorious reality. He's going to march us through truth after truth that's meant to aid us. It's meant to help us. It's meant to inform our minds and comfort our hearts. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about the central seat of your will and your emotions. It's talking about your central organizing and motivational core of who you are deep on the inside. The truth that Jesus states in these verses and throughout this sermon series aren't one-off pearls of wisdom. They aren't empty sentiment. Jesus' words are meant to rearrange how we shape our internal assessment of what's happening outside of us. 
Jesus' words are meant to go to the heart and reorganize how we decide to handle the troubles of this life, how we make sense of things. Jesus provides for us a biblical filter with which we can encounter everything ugly and everything scary and everything daunting that the world throws at us and everything troublesome. Remember that Jesus has just said the title of this entire series is Don't Let Your Hearts Be Troubled. And now Jesus explains more of the grounding on which he stands by which he can utter such expectations, such seemingly unrealistic expectations. So we're going to look at what undergirds, what holds up Jesus' instructions from this text. And I'm going to talk about two simple ideas, but two simple, really, really, really profound realities for the Christian. I'm going to talk about how God wants to dwell with his people. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with you. And I'm going to talk about how he's coming back again to take us to a place that's prepared for us. He's coming back again to take us back to this place he mentions in this text where we can be with him forever. And before I get into those two primary kind of stabilizing handholds for us, I want to say something about unmet expectations in the Bible. I want to say something about times where our expectations are kind of shattered or dashed. Because throughout this section of scripture and in many other places in the Bible, we see that God moves the story along in a sort of predictable way or a sort of understandable kind of way. And then at times we're pinned by a kind of movement in the story that's unexpected, that is unwanted and unexpected. And I want to discuss three cases of unpredictable and unusual movement between God and people that he says he loves very, very much. Characters in the Bible that God loves and has appointed significant roles within the story of redemption. I'm going to talk about David and Saul, otherwise known as the Apostle Paul. And then I'm just going to mention how that flows into the rest of our time today with the disciples in the, in the text that we have. So first, I want to talk about the character David. I want to, I want to talk about how the, the things that the Bible highlights about David are character realities that are demonstrably worth imitating, right? In the book of Samuel, we meet a young shepherd boy named David, and, and when we're introduced to him, we're told that there's something virtuous about his character. He's called a man after God's own heart, and Samuel is instructed to go and anoint this teenage boy as king of Israel. But this does not make David king either formally or functionally right away. No, instead of taking this cushy throne as king, David spends the next 15 years of his life in utter struggle and difficulty. He battles a giant. The current king, Saul, attempts to murder him on multiple occasions. Later in the story, David is banished. He lives on the run and is forced to hide in the desert. His closest friend is killed and all of that before he finally becomes king of Judah. He's a man that's drenched in the favor of God. And that's obvious because in the story, it's stated over and over and over again that the Lord was with him. And his life was full to the brim of unending hardship. He was a poet and a singer and he wrote powerful and theologically rich psalms to God. He loved the Lord in a way that 
that every other king was measured by. He was a man after God's own heart. And yet the twist in the story is that he took a road of significant suffering and ongoing difficulty and pain. The apostle Paul was once referred to in the, in the scriptures as Saul. And in the New Testament, we meet this man, Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. And Acts 8 introduces him by saying this. And Saul, was approved, and Saul approved of this execution. That's a reference to the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the early church. Paul approved of this, or Saul approved of this execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul, this is the apostle Paul, was ravaging, ravaging the church house after house. He dragged out men and he dragged out women and committed them to prison. And later in Acts chapter nine, we read about Saul's conversion, Saul's dramatic conversion. He is stopped on his journey by the Lord Jesus. When Saul's on his way to go put more women and more children in prison, he is confronted with Jesus and struck blind and converted. And it's a, it's a great story. I recommend uh, reading it maybe this afternoon in Acts chapter nine. But once he is converted... What God says about this man is that he, this man who was killing and ravaging and persecuting the church, he is my chosen instrument and I must show him how much he must suffer for my name. And that suffering was extreme. If you want to turn to page 970 in the Bible in your pew, Paul actually lists for us, the suffering that he endured in 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 24 through 28. I'm going to read through it quickly. This is God's chosen instrument. This is a man who was persecuting the church, arrested on a road by Jesus Christ, and then aimed to be God's chosen instrument. And that means what I'm about to read. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So we see someone like Paul, Paul of the New Testament, who wrote so many theological letters and pastoral letters, directions and instructions that we preach from and teach from and read. We see that he was God's chosen instrument and the life that he led was one of intense suffering and not what we would expect or desire. And then the third example brings us to the men in our text today. Jesus is talking to men that are going to face really, really difficult realities, really painful realities. We, we read through this farewell discourse and we see over and over and over again that these men don't know what's going on. 
They're confused. There's a sense of nervousness. And the idea that Jesus was about to be betrayed, tortured, condemned, and crucified is far from any of their categories. They don't see this coming. They don't understand. They're about to watch Jesus walk a path that would trouble anyone's heart. And yet Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Think about that. Think about your teacher and leader and friend, one that you've devoted your life to is about to be murdered. The man that you've hitched your wagon to is about to be crucified by a mob. Your leader, your friend, is about to be chopped down. And these men, like any of us, will know what that means when it happens. It means that they're next. But Jesus gives them these statements and these explanations, and they're meant to strengthen them and encourage them. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare one for you, and I'm coming back to get you. I'm coming back for you. But the gap between their expectation and what actually happens is massive. And the gap is hard and painful and difficult. It's troublesome. And many of us know this feeling right now. We know that our hearts are aching for different specific reasons and different specific circumstances. Many of us in this room are intensely challenged even in this moment. We're saying in our hearts it isn't supposed to be this way. Many of us in this room are dejected or struggling or finding ourselves living in a state of disappointment that's really, really hard. But like we've seen from these few examples God's not like us. He doesn't do things exactly how we expect. There are certain moments and times when he walks us straight into disappointment. And yet in the midst of that pain, he offers victorious comfort. We look at our life with our own formulas. We tend to have our own picture of how things should go. We look at our lives with our own measuring devices. We look at our lives and see kind of a couple options for a God that we are okay with him choosing. We kind of hand God his own choose your own adventure book and tell him I'm okay with one, two, and three, but four, five, and six, that's not going to work. We look at our lives and that's kind of how we treat them. But God often, often will stack the deck against himself, which also means stacking the deck against us on purpose so that we can finally give up on our own demand that he choose one of our forecasts for the future and receive his, the one that he's working for us, for our good. We have our own plans. We have our own ideas for what God should be doing in our lives and in our friends' lives. We have different options for him to choose from. We treat God like he can decide if we're going out to eat what we're eating, but he can't decide whether or not we're eating at all. God... God's not like us. God's not like us. He doesn't work that way. He wants our total dependence. He wants our total devotion. And that's good for us. He wants us to understand in the deep places that he truly is all that we need. He truly is all that we have. He'll actually go to drastic measures to achieve that goal inside of us. God sometimes wants to bring us low under the weight of things being worse than we thought so that he can prove himself to be more for us and better to us than we ever imagined. I got to hear an example of this on Thursday. I spent Thursday night listening 
listening to a mother's story. This mother whose baby, whose little newborn, had to have his kidneys removed before he was even a year old. He was having them removed because his father was going to give his kidney to his own one-year-old son. This family was in the hospital more than they weren't over the course of an entire year. The weight of this woman's grief and strength of her resolve were nothing less than stunning, jaw-dropping. And this mom talked She talked to me and my wife and another family, and you could see that her heart and her attitude were saturated with love for the goodness and faithfulness of God. She's a faith-filled woman who knows knows what this verse means today. She knows what Jesus is saying when he says, don't let your heart be troubled because I want to be with you. And I'm making a place for you. She knows what it means to experience Jesus in the midst of her utter fear and utter devastation. And she knows what it means to have your heart teetering on the edge of sanity because of longing for your child to simply live. Over and over and over in the Bible, God has to creatively make it look like he's losing for our good. He has to make it look like he's losing. He has to shatter our expectations so that we understand that only when we see how weak we truly are can we really benefit from his power and his strength and his goodness. So family, hear Jesus' words today and understand their implication. He wants to be with us. God wants to dwell with his people. That's the first simple, profound life-changing truth from this text. God wants to dwell with his people. He plans on dwelling with his people. Ever since the fall, he's been planning to dwell with his people. The presence of the living God is what we were made for. And it's what we're being brought back to. And if this is the type of thing that God decides to communicate with men who are about to walk through what these disciples are about to walk through, I think we need to pay attention. I think we need to pay attention. I think these words are important for us. If this is what Jesus wants them to have in this moment, then we would do well to meditate on the substance of them. And you see, this isn't just good advice. This isn't a suggestion. Jesus is about to be tortured to the bone and strung up like an animal. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. After all of this, after all of this, I'm coming back for you. You don't have to worry about whether or not I want to be with you. You don't have to worry about whether or not everything I've said to you up till now was a total lie. You don't have to worry about whether or not I want you with me. You don't have to ask the questions, does God even care? Does he even want to be here? What's all this been about? Why did he even save me with my circumstances the way they are? Does he even want to be with me? And we see here that it was critical and crucial and essential for the disciples to hear about their closeness to Jesus Christ being preserved even through his death, burial, and resurrection. 
You see, the desire of God to be with his people is strong enough to take him to the cross and it's big enough and powerful enough to overcome your sin so that you can be connected to him forever. Forever. God wants to dwell with his people and that means he wants to dwell with you. Throughout the Old Testament, this kind of withness of God is seen over and over and over again. Sin broke communion that God had with his first people, Adam and Eve. Angels were stationed at the entrance of the garden to keep us from eating the tree of life and being banished from God's presence forever. We see the tabernacle in the Old Testament. We see the temple erected as a place of God's presence and worship. We see later in the story of Jesus that he actually says, it's better that I go so that this reality of my presence, the Holy Spirit himself can come to you. In Exodus 25, God says to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's still the plan. That plan has never changed. The phrase that I may dwell in their midst has always been the goal. God made a people through the story of Abraham in order to be with those people. God pursued them and instructed them and disciplined them for their good so that they could dwell with him. And this is the same reality that we see in this text today. Jesus isn't being forced to be with these people. Nobody is twisting his arm. We aren't like an estranged family member that everyone acts weird around and that nobody really wants to talk to. His delight is, make, is making us able to be with him. In the Old Testament, the people built the tabernacle and in the New Testament, Jesus builds the church, his bride, his temple, his people that he will be with forever. Exodus 29, 46 says, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that, that, that I might dwell with them. Leviticus 26, 11 says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. First Kings 6, 13 says, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel. Paul connects this language in 1 Corinthians when he says in 1 Corinthians 6.16, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people from, Levit from Leviticus 26.12. And finally, we read in Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be, they will be his people and he will be with them as their God. So, from the garden, right? From, from Genesis to Revelation, from the front of the book to the back of the book, God's making a people so that that can be true about, that he can be with, that we can be in his presence and with the living God forever. This language is staggering. God says, I will make, I will dwell, I will do it. This isn't an accident or some subsequent accidental byproduct. This is God's project. God's aim, God's effort to be with you is his operation. It's his maneuvering for your good by giving you delight in his glory and his mission in the world. Right now, what I want for you, for our church, is to understand in the deepest places of who we are that God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. God wants to dwell with you. His mission and his intention described throughout the Old Testament is the same right now. 
He's moving and ordering and arranging and structuring things in your life right now to get to your heart so that you can know him in deeper and fuller and more beautiful ways. Right now, the circumstances in your life aren't an accident. They've been carefully fabricated by God and appointed for you as a means for you to embrace your own weakness, your own frailty. They've been selected so that you can understand your weakness a little bit more and lean on the strength of Christ in increasingly uh, powerful ways throughout your life. Right now, I want you to know that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, wants to be with you. I want you to know that you're forgiven all the way to the bottom and that you can be loved more deeply than you could ever, ever fathom. The book of Romans reminds us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The barrier has been removed, has been removed. And the second thing I want us to dwell on and meditate on and realize today is that he's coming again to take us to the place that he's prepared for us. Jesus treats this reality as if it should be connected to how we exist in the trouble of our lives right now. Jesus is facing the hardest tests of his life and he chooses to say, I'm coming back for you and I have a place for you where you'll stay forever. So I think I I want us to examine why this truth, this future promise and reality can offer us stability to stand in the midst of trouble without letting it overtake our hearts? And why does this promise of Jesus change how we engage things like utter failure or utter despair and disappointment or anxiety? And I I thought of just three reasons that this matters for navigating trouble in our lives. The first one, the first one I want to meditate on is that if this is true, what Jesus is doing for us, then we're free. We're free. Jesus sets us free. The fact that Jesus is going to make a place ready for me and that he's coming back to get me and bring me into the presence of God forever means that I don't have to live as a slave to the fear of man or a slave to the praise of man. I can be free to live my entire life in the hidden places and my entire life out in the open public for an audience of one person, for an audience of one person alone. We can with confidence arrange our lives for the last day because nobody else, there's nobody else in your life that's going to come back for you the way Jesus is. No critical voice in your life has the final say. Jesus does. But on the other side, no flattering voice in your life has the final say. Jesus does. And all will be revealed at the end. And who we were living our lives for will not be hidden. If we arrange our understanding of the trouble of this life around God's eternal plans to be with us, we will be able to live lives free from being liked, free from being popular, free from the approval of anyone other than Jesus. No one in your life is going to make a way for you to live with God forever. 
Jesus is the only person that matters for how you live and how you behave and what you trust in. The trials and troubles in your life are there to set you free from the trap of pleasing others, to set you free from the trap of trying or feeling the compulsion to please others more than God. Second, we have a secure future. This reality that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us and he's coming back to get us should give us confidence because we have a secure future. It's not unknown. It's not even, um, it's not even gloomy or average. It's bright. Jesus is coming back to get you and take you home and that means that no one and nothing can touch it. Romans 8 again says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ and nothing will separate you from your future home with God forever. What's said about the love of Christ in these verses is the same and can be said here about the place that Jesus is preparing for you and the place that he's coming back to take us to. The same list here is the same list that the disciples are going to be able to overcome if, if they can and if we can embrace with confidence the kind of secure reality that Jesus is making for us. This place that Jesus is making for them and for us is bought through Christ's loving sacrifice. Christian, you can with all confidence say, you can with all confidence say, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth can, can, can separate you, can separate you from this secure future in God's house. If Jesus is getting it ready for you, it's as good as done, as good as done. Nothing, nothing can get in the way. And that is how trouble works in our life. It tries to get us to doubt that. It tries to get us to ignore that or forget that. The trouble in your life is trying to get you to think that Jesus can't do what he said he was going to do. The trouble in your life will harden your heart or soften your heart. You'll not stay neutral. You'll grow in bitterness or will grow in meekness. We'll grow in pride or will grow in humility, but you can't walk through pain and disappointment and anguish like a robot. You can't maintain neutrality, but you can, you can take this verse and shine the light of eternity onto your circumstances and announce, I have a place, a home waiting for me and I can endure the path in front of me. So, if Jesus is going to do this for me, I can live for an audience of one because I'm free from the fear of approval of man. My future home is not up for grabs. It is secure in Christ. 
just as secure as Christ's love for me. And third, the trouble doesn't have to be troubling, not in this overwhelming or completely hopeless way because these troubles are the mechanism by which he's preparing for us this place. We'll get to the place that Jesus is going. We'll get to the place that Jesus is talking about in this text the same way that he did. We'll take the same path that Jesus had to take. Jesus is going to the right hand of the Father and he knows He knows this. A little later, he will say to these men, it's better that I go so the Holy Spirit can come. But but Jesus is also about to walk a road of pain and suffering and beating and mocking and stress and duress. His path is a path of trouble. And we will have our own version of this path. The suffering of Jesus works salvation for all of God's elect. Jesus will be worshiped forever as the lamb that was slain. Revelation 5 tells us the road that he takes is our road also. This glorious road of sacrifice that he will, by which he'll establish his name to be worshiped above every other name that at his name, every knee should bow. He's worshiped forever as the Christ who walks this Calvary road and is tortured and died. He's worshiped as the lamb that was slain and we're not greater than our master. We'll walk our own road. We'll pick up our own cross. We'll deny ourselves because our pain and anguish and trouble is working for us an eternal weight of glory. The eternal perspective gives us the understanding that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is to prepare for life in the place that Jesus is preparing for us. And to die is to be there. So what shall we fear, right? What shall we fear? What can man do to us? The hard answer to that question is that he can kill us. I have a a mentor that I talk to probably monthly. And one time I was working um, through a kind of decision that was troubling me. I was going back and forth and he was helping me be wise and intelligent about it. And he, at one point in the conversation, he kind of stops everything and gave me perspective by saying, hey, Mark, hey, Mark, that phone call isn't going to kill anybody. It's not going to kill anybody. And we both, we both chuckled a little bit. And then I took a moment and laughed, laughed at myself, right? I'm not that important. Um, and then I gathered, I gathered myself and, and thought about my principles and, and made the decision. That was a comforting reality where he put the trouble in my life in perspective in a way that I could go ahead and march, march through what, what was the right thing to do. But, but the promise that Jesus makes to us is unbelievably bigger and higher and wider and deeper than that. This promise from Jesus is better. This promise from Jesus makes us invincible in the face of every scary reality waiting for you. We're made for God's presence. God wants us in his presence. And Jesus says, I'll accomplish it all. I'll do all the heavy lifting. I'll go prepare your eternal dwelling place. And even death, even death can't stop us from getting all that God has for us. This is why we can stop letting our hearts be troubled. 
Jesus is coming back for us. Jesus is coming back for us. We actually can let that reality sink down into the core of who we are to where it actually brings weight to our soul and stabilizes our steps. Because while he's away, in a way, preparing that place for us, we are being prepared day by day by day for that place forever, forever. There isn't a hiccup or a hurdle, or a wrinkle in your life that isn't shaping you and changing you and molding you and making you ready to be with God forever, forever. And we celebrate that reality through the table. We celebrate that reality through Christ's shed blood and his broken body. So quickly, I'll give you directions for how we take communion here at Redeemer. What we do is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have a station to my left and to my right and up in the balcony. And we'll also have a gluten-free single serve station that's down here in in the center aisle. We'll also have prayer ministers over here to my left who would love to pray for you or with you about anything. We take communion every single week at Redeemer Fellowship because we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again, until he comes again. So eat in faith and celebration. And the scriptures say eat soberly, right? If you have places of reconciling relationships or things that the Lord has put on your heart, do that work first before coming to the table. Um, At Redeemer, we also invite anybody who puts all of their hope all of their faith in Jesus for their salvation to come take communion. If you don't believe that, uh, this isn't uh, this ritual won't do anything for you. It's not magical. Um, you're not fooling God or fooling anybody else. So we invite you to consider maybe the words of Jesus. We invite you to ask him to re- reveal himself, perhaps for the first time. We ask you to sit in your seats and pray. But if you're celebrating the life, death, and resurrection as your only hope, to be with God forever and your only hope to navigate with stability any of the overwhelming or difficult circumstances in your life, to see those things redeemed in a way that transforms you and brings God tons of glory. If that's you, we invite you to come. I'm going to pray for us and then the servers will come up to the front. So Jesus, we love to proclaim your life, death, and resurrection. You're perfect, you were righteous, you were sinless. You died the death that we should have died and you lived the life that we could have never, ever lived. So I ask for the people in this room that you would convict the proud, comfort the the weary, strengthen the weak through eating in faith. The whole Christian life is faith. We parent in faith, we walk through struggles in faith. We reconcile relationships in faith. We love each other in faith. We stumble and clumsily move forward in this life through faith. So would you fill us with faith now? I ask in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come when you're ready.